Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, well, if you have a Bible, open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're working our way through a series in 1 Corinthians, just plowing right through it. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you're using one of the chair Bibles, that's on page 671. By the way, if you do not have a Bible or you forgot your Bible, you're welcome to use that Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we encourage you to take that Bible and keep it as your own. We have a bunch more in the back. We'll, we'll resupply the Bibles under the chairs um, every week if we have to. So uh, we're going to speak today in the first seven verses of 1 Corinthians 4. If you're on our church mailing list, we sent out an email saying that I was going to preach through all of chapter 4 today. But upon further review, as I was uh, in between uh, repenting from the sin of gluttony on Thursday and thinking about this uh, passage and this next chapter in Corinthians uh, I really saw some things in it that I think we need to settle down on a little bit and take our time with. And so we're just going to uh, handle the first seven verses of the fourth chapter, even though we kind of got into the fourth chapter a couple weeks ago. And then next week, we're going to look at the middle paragraph there. And then the following week, December 12th, we'll handle the end of chapter four. And then on December 19th, three weeks from today, uh, Don McKelvey is going to be preaching and then we're going to take a little break from the Corinthian series for the 26th of December. And then the 2nd of January, do like a two, little, two little messages, standalone messages. And then we'll pick back up into Corinthians uh, beginning January 9th. And so that's just to kind of give you a heads up. If you're visiting with us today, we uh, have been preaching through 1 Corinthians. Last week, however, uh, Reynolds preached an excellent just standalone message on 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 called the mediator and so if you were not here uh, I really encourage you to pick up a CD of his message it's on in the information desk not booth uh, anyway Hawk um, anyway we kind of came you now the information center no that was what it was the information center out there and uh, that's what we do in our staff meetings is think about what to call certain places of the church but there's a CD uh, there that I'd love for you to pick up and and get and listen to Reynolds' tremendous preaching. And on that note, Don's going to be preaching, as I mentioned, on the 19th. And just so blessed as a church to have uh, fellow elders that are godly men who have a passion for the Scriptures and believe in holding out Jesus as the only hope and, and cling tightly to the Scriptures and to preach about Jesus. That's a, such a blessing for us as a church and a blessing for me to, to listen to and to receive myself. I was so encouraged last week. On that note, uh, we're going to be talking about humility today. In fact, gospel-centered humility. And we were leaving the parking lot yesterday, or last Sunday afternoon, after kind of closing things up. And I had my two oldest children in the car with me, Joseph and Jacob. And so Joseph, who I think was uh, usually in the service, was serving and helping in one of the kids' ministry rooms. And he said, well, how was the the message today, knowing that, that Reynolds had preached? And I said, oh, it was awesome. It was great. And Jacob didn't really pick up that Reynolds was preaching. And so there was a little silence in the back seat. And he said, Dad? I said, yeah, son. He says, that wasn't very humble of you. <laughs> I said, no, actually, Mr. Reynolds was preaching uh, at Jacob. And so he felt a little relieved that his dad was not um, puffed up in pride. We're going to talk about gospel-centered humility today. And ultimately, we're going to talk about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. 
And so if you're new today, or you're visiting, you're looking for a church, or you're visiting family from out of town, the, the message of what God did in Christ on the cross for sinners like us is the drumbeat, in fact, the only message of this church. And if you're a Christian, and maybe even if this is your church home, and you have become sort of uh, familiar with that message as Reynolds spoke about last week, this familiarity that can oftentimes bring contempt or, or even laziness towards this beautiful truth. And my prayer is today that whether you need Christ for salvation for the first time or whether you've been a Christian for a very long time, that as we think about these truths and as we think about again what Christ has done on the cross for us, that we would make a thousand different applications on how this applies to our life. But most of all, what the greatest need of every heart in this room, whether you are not yet a Christian or whether you have been a Christian for a long time, is that your heart would be stirred in affection for Jesus and that you'd be drawn in warmth and that your heart would burn within you with a passion for Christ and His majesty. And so I'm going to pray. And well, let me read the scripture, then I'll pray. And then we'll work our way back through it, all right? So let's go. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, first seven verses. This is what Paul says. He says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to stir our hearts so that we might see Jesus. Father, we thank you for this word for your Bible. It's true. It's inspired by you. In fact, you breathed it out through the hands of many different men over many different years in many different cultures in different settings. But for the one great purpose of revealing your greatness to us so that we might see you and trust in you and not in ourselves, so that we might turn from sin and self-righteousness, and idolatry, and follow the one true living God. I pray that as we read these words, even these seemingly obscure words that are rarely preached on in the first few sentences of 1 Corinthians 4, as we work our way through this beautiful letter, that you would stir our hearts. I pray for people in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus some of them that may realize that they are not yet Christians and some that may think they are but are not. I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to be born again. Lord, my hope does not lie in human free will. 
Because human free will has been shattered at the fall and we are slave to sin in ourselves. My hope lies in the freeness of your grace and in the greatness of your mercy that you might be so kind as to cause people in this room to be born again by the living and abiding Word of God. And I pray, God, for tired, comfortable Christians in this room that our hearts would be roused again towards affection in Jesus and that this would have a thousand different applications in our lives so that we would be more like you and that your Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning. I pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, in this chapter, in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, I see four little things, four points that we're going to look at in the first seven verses. But before we get to that, let me just catch you up on a little background of where we are in 1 Corinthians. Paul has been writing to this church that he planted about two years earlier from when this letter is written. And he, in one of his missionary journeys, is uh, through Corinth, and he goes through this city, which was full of very, very gifted people. It was a crossroads of culture where many different people were uh, there for business reasons and were there to be educated or there to sell and buy and trade. And so it was sort of a, a, a crossroads, a, a community that had many, many gifted people from many different places there for business purposes. And with this came a lot of talent, but with this came a lot of self-righteousness and a lot of sin and a lot of carnality and The Corinthians were known for all sorts of debauchery. And in this particular place, the Lord inspired Paul, called Paul to plant a church. And he plants this church and he delivers to these Corinthians the true gospel, the work of what Christ has done on the cross for sinners. Whether they're gifted, intelligent people who need Jesus or whether they're poor and uneducated people that need Jesus. In this this cultural mess... God plants a church through Paul, and he begins this church. He stays there for about 18 months, which was much longer than he usually would stay. And then he goes on, and now he hears back from some of his ministry associates that this church is caught up in all sorts of crazy carnality, that they're beginning to do uh, things that uh, are against the Scriptures. And Paul now is writing back to them, arguing for the true gospel to them. And one of the things that's happening there is that the church, in fact, one of the great problems of this Corinthian church is that they're starting to break into factions and they're starting to be divisive and they're starting to identify themselves less with Christ and the sweetness and beauty and simplicity of his gospel and they're starting to identify themselves with particular leaders in the church and they were starting to develop camps, theological camps, uh, cultural camps and, and this was fighting or it was cutting against their ability to be a church that is on mission for the sake of the gospel in their city. And so Paul is writing back to them and he's refuting their, their divisiveness. And, and one of the things that's happening is, is that the church, especially those that were not in his camp, he, they're starting to question Paul's authority and his apostleship and even his ability to have any authority to write back to them. And so Paul is, in a sense, defending his ministry. In fact, that's a large part of what his second letter to the Corinthians is that we know of as 2 Corinthians. He's defending his ministry to them. And so he's beginning now in chapter 4, as we'll get into it these next couple weeks, he's beginning to defend his ministry against this broken notion which still exists today that if you are truly blessed by God, that life will be easy for you. 
We're not going to get into it today, but starting in verse 8 through 13, he talks about how difficult his life has been and how, how he has, in fact, he calls himself the scum of the earth and that the fact that he is living the way he is broken and beaten and constantly being harassed is uh, as a converse of what the Corinthians were saying. It's actually an identifying characteristic of his apostleship rather than an argument against his apostleship. Contrast that, by the way, and don't let me get started on this rabbit trail. Contrast that with the false health and wealth gospel that you see on much of Christian TV today, which has as its undercurrent the, the, the false lie that if you are truly blessed by God, you will be somehow blessed financially or economically or things will be kind of easy for you here in this life. Actually, oftentimes it's the opposite, and that's the beginning of Paul's argument in chapter 4. And so he starts off by saying, hey, listen, uh, I don't worry about being judged by you people. I'm free from that. And in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. When you see the word mysteries in the New Testament, mystery or mysteries, it happens in 1 Corinthians a lot. It happens in Ephesians and 1 Peter it talks about mystery. And when you see the word mystery, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't cause that to push you back and say, oh, is that some deep thing that only theologians or people that have been to seminary can understand? When you see the word mystery or mysteries in the New Testament, what Paul is speaking about there is just the plain and simple gospel. In fact, he says in Ephesians chapter 3 that part of his mission was to make this mystery of Christ's work on the cross plain and known to all people. In fact, his mission was to make it known to the, to the Gentiles. And so don't, don't push back from that word mystery. What that literally means is, in Paul's language, is that the, the gospel, the simple truth that God, in his providence, in his kindness, in his grace, has deemed in his great sovereignty to save the world through the simplicity of what Christ has done on the cross and that all of those who repent and trust simply in what Jesus has done are God's children. And that is the great mystery that is hidden from the wise of this age that are caught up in human wisdom and self-reliance. And so, so Paul says to these Corinthians that he is simply a steward of the mysteries of God. Verse 2, it is required of these stewards that they be found trustworthy. And that brings us to our, our first point that I see in these seven verses is that leaders are to be trustworthy stewards of the gospel. It's a very simple truth, but it's very powerful and something that we really need to remember here at Crosspoint and as Christians, that leaders are to be trustworthy stewards of the gospel. A lot of times uh, I think that I present this truth kind of defensive because um, I am sort of an observer of Christian culture in America, and um, a lot of times that makes me sort of keenly aware of a lot of the, the idolatry and a lot of the uh, self-indulgence of church culture, and a lot of times I feel like I'm being overly critical of, of church culture in America or... Not that I'm wrong in my assessment, quite honestly, but I think that a lot of times I just get so angry and I just 
start pounding on this pulpit and 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 you guys just because of the force of my when i get going like i'm like a snowball going downhill you guys are like okay we get you and there's like a nervous clap sometimes when i get to that crescendo and i talk about the false gospel and tbn and you know idolatrous church culture you guys are like yeah yeah but i don't really know what you're talking about you're scaring me and so you clap just to get me to shut up i i get that i get that but what what paul is saying here is that Leaders in the Christian church simply are stewards. They're mailmen. That's all a Christian pastor, preacher, or leader is. And because we are Americans, we, we are just so susceptible to the cult of personality. The sharp guy that looks like he you know, spent Saturday in a tanning bed with slick hair and white teeth, and he's just... You know, he's just super charismatic guy, you know. You pull up the front page of his church website and he's, you know, he's, he's like, he's like this, you know, and he's, he's got a little golden retriever with a bandana on and all this you know, cute little, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that pastor's faces shouldn't be, shouldn't have a picture or whatever, but, but, but we need to realize that we as Americans in particular, I think more than other Christians in other parts of the world are very susceptible to charismatic personalities. And what that does is it, it blunts our ability to truly discern the truth of the mystery, which is the gospel, which is what Christian leaders should be delivering. And so what happens is we oftentimes, unwittingly, because our discernment is low, is we just kind of float from place to place where there's this charismatic personality or this, this really seemingly alive church environment. And a lot of times we can get involved and just sort of give ourselves to things that are not, that are not truly stewards of the gospel. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, there may be some, some shinier personalities. Apollos may be a little bit more gifted in preaching. And Peter may have spent a little bit more time with Jesus here on this earth. But, but what I'm saying to you, Corinthians, is, is, that, is that pastors, Christian leaders, leaders in the church, in fact, leaders in the home, should simply be carriers, humble mailmen, stewards of the gospel. And this is how you should identify true spiritual leadership, whether they are clear about how God saves a man and whether they are clear about the implications of the gospel in all of life and whether that is their message time after time, Sunday after Sunday, just simple clarity, unconfusing clarity, unsort of self-admiring clarity about who Christ is. They should decrease and Christ should increase. Now, is that to say that God doesn't call people with certain personality or certain gifts to be his, to be his stewards or to be his mouthpiece on this earth? No. Be yourself, preacher. Do, do what you do. But the point is, is that preachers are simply humble stewards. They're mailmen. They're carriers of the truth of God. And many preachers and many Christian leaders like myself, and we're going to talk about this in a second, are oftentimes very susceptible to the, to the approval of people and to the adulation of their congregation. And we as a church, in order for us to be a gospel-centered, humble, really Christ-centered place, must be aware of this 
and judge rightly the stewards of God, which is that they carry the simple truth of the gospel, which, by the way, you need to hear it over and over and over again. You need to hear the gospel. You don't need self-help sermons. You don't need three steps on how to do this or that. You need to hear... You need to hear about what Jesus has done over and over and over again, even if you've been a Christian for 40 years. The gospel not only saves us, the gospel sanctifies us. Hearing the gospel again and again, what God has done for sinners like you and me, again and again, remembering that whether I've been a Christian for two days or two decades, that I go again to the cross and that Jesus has taken my sin and that he has given me his spirit and his righteousness and that it is in this power of the resurrection that I can now live and treat my wife and my children and those around me with humility and graciousness. That is what I need to hear again and again and again. And it's what you need to hear. And out of that flow a million applications on how to have a good life. But we need to be stewards of this trustworthy gospel. And that is what Paul is saying to me. He's saying it to Reynolds. He's saying it to Don, to Will, to Christian dads in this room, to us as a church, that we are stewards of a message. The last, right at the end of the New Testament in Jude chapter 3, or Jude chapter, there's only one chapter of Jude, Jude 1 verse 3, Jude writes and he says that we are to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to us by the saints. And so there's this contending going on with Paul, and oftentimes the contending of the simplicity of the gospel puts us at odds with the pressure of our culture to be slick and charismatic and seemingly more relevant and helpful. Nothing is more relevant and helpful than the biblical gospel and hearing again and again what Jesus has done for us. That's Point number one, leaders are to be trustworthy stewards of the gospel. Churches are to be trustworthy stewards of the gospel. Dads and moms, leaders in this church are to be trustworthy stewards of the gospel. Let's keep going. Verse three. But with me now, he moves into this this sort of defense about how the Corinthians were judging him. And now he's going to talk about how he's free from these things. Verse three. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, verse 5, and this is, a, this, is a, this is a very important verse, very penetrating verse. He says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. It brings us to point number two is that the gospel frees us from slavery to the approval of man. The gospel frees us from slavery to the approval of man. Paul is refuting the Corinthians' charge that he wasn't quite as talented as Apollos or he didn't have quite the wisdom maybe that Peter did because of his time with Jesus. And so... You can see this battle that might be going on, this sort of inferiority complex that might be rising up in Paul's heart. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Ultimately, Corinthians, I'm not going to be judged by you. In fact, I'm not even going to be judged by myself, but I'm going to be judged by God someday. And there's going to come a day when I'm going to stand before God. And then all of us, all of us that are Christians will receive their condemnation or their, their, not their condemnation, will receive their commendation from God. 
What a great truth. What a freedom this should bring. Think about just right now in your life, just some, just some relationship that has gone sideways, just some situation where you may be uh, responsible for something and it's just not going quite well and, and there's just this sense of what, what are they thinking of me? And Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says that the gospel should free us from the slavery of the approval of man. If I could take just a moment um, to just sort of interject some teaching that I think we need to know as a church that will be helpful for how we as, as leaders of the church interact with you is that as this church grows, there's just no way that I can be the guy that knows everybody and, and, and is sort of uh, close to everybody. And honestly, I'm going through a little bit of withdrawal on that. Um, we've been doing these new member interviews. Reynold and I have been meeting with people that have been going through the new member class, which is something new that we've uh, instituted just so that we would have an opportunity to get to know people. And um, we'll, we'll meet some people. And, and, and honestly, there's these little things rising up in me. There's this person that's been in the church for a while, and I don't know something. And I'll hear maybe just complete confession here. I'll just hear maybe that, oh, they're, you know, they were at this particular place and they knew this person. And it's just kind of like, oh, I don't know you. Well, you know, I mean, can I be important in your life too? There's just this thing in me like, what, 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 what? You, you mean your social circle does not revolve around me and Jennifer? And, 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 and it's just kind of this stuff that there's just this idolatry in me that has to die. And Paul is saying here is that when leaders are sort of when they're held captive to the approval of man, it's terrible for the heart of a leader. And by God's grace, he sent us such a great team here. And I am slowly dying to that. But, but, but you need to know that as a pastor and as leaders, me and Reynolds and Don, Will, Paul, we are susceptible to man-pleasing. And one of the best ways that you can help the gospel be effective in our tribe, in our church is to graciously free us from that. Or if you see us sort of overcompensating or just sort of overdoing it, release us and pray for us that we might be humble, Christ-centered leaders. This is a problem in the church. It, it's still a problem even in my own soul. And one of the best ways you can serve the gospel here in this, in this church is to pray that we would be men that would seek not the approval of men, but that we would seek the approval of God and that we would be courageous and that we will clearly preach the scriptures and that we will hold up Christ, which when you hold up Christ, it will bring you into conflict with the world and with people in the church. And one of the best things that we can do for health among us is to die to the approval of man because the gospel frees us from that slavery. Let's keep going. He says in verse 6 that I've applied all these things to myself. And Apollos, who's this other preacher in the church that the Corinthians are trying to pit Paul against. Apollos was a very gifted orator, a very learned man. And he had a lot of charisma and a lot of people were attracted to his eloquence. And, and, and Paul and Apollos are not buying into this these contentions that where the Corinthian church is trying to pit them against one another and they're remaining tight in the gospel and, and warding off this spiritual warfare of factionalism. And he's saying, listen, Apollos and I have applied these things to our heart for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, 
that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. What was happening here is that people in the church were sort of identifying themselves with particular leaders. And at the core of this, very likely, was this, this need in the human heart that existed in Corinth and it exists in Columbus today, where we use our affiliations to sort of prop ourselves up to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Don't we do that? Isn't that just, I mean, that is timeless. We all do that. We, we jockey, we maneuver, we politicize human relationships so that we're kind of in the best possible light. And Paul is saying here is that, is that when you do that, it cuts against the power of Christ's work and the gospel in a community. And he says, don't do this, man. Don't be in a place and be in a place that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, which brings us to the third point here. The first one being leaders are to be trustworthy stewards of the gospel. The second, that the gospel frees us from slavery to the approval of man. And the third is that church life should never be a platform for self-exaltation. Church life should never be a platform for self-exaltation. There's just something sometimes about church culture where we come in and it's just sort of all about us. And Paul is writing to these Corinthians and he's saying, no, 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 the blessedness of the Spirit of Christ resting on a people is when they die to this slavery of the approval of man and they shirk off this temptation to make it about themselves. And they're not puffed up one against another, but they focus on Christ. Some of the symptoms of, that I just sort of brainstormed about cultures of self-exaltation rather than Christ-exaltation are people in churches who crave authority and responsibility and position. Churches oftentimes are sidetracked by subordinate leaders who desire attention and authority and respect. Another symptom is this sort of fear amongst the church that we might neglect appreciating someone or making someone feel welcome. And so we spend all of our time just saying, is Johnny feeling good over here? Does Susie feel good about herself? And so everybody's just kind of walking on eggshells, wondering if they're going to offend somebody. And if there's a culture where people are easily offended, it generally means that the gospel has not really sunk into that culture. And it also means that the leaders of that culture are not driving the gospel home and people are not reveling in the exaltation of Christ but they are starving for self-promotion. And that exists in, in many different church cultures. And we cannot be a church that is obsessed with this sort of culture of, 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 of puffing one another up like a child that just wants somebody to acknowledge them. This is not a, obviously to say that there shouldn't be a biblical balance in our culture, that we shouldn't love one another, and that, as, as the Scriptures say, that we shouldn't give honor to those to whom honor is due, and that we shouldn't revel and take great joy in the work of the gospel among us. And so the next time we recognize somebody, don't say, oh my gosh, they just, you know, Brad just said we shouldn't do that a couple weeks ago. What's going on here? Now, th there's this biblical balance here where we take joy in the work of Christ amongst one another, but where there's this utter humility where church life is not a platform for self-exaltation, which then brings us to our final verse and our last point. I think one of the most profound sentences in all of 
this letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have? Listen to this. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that God did not give you? Really, think about this now. Let's start with the biggest issue of all, salvation. It's a gift from God. Nobody in this room, no matter how intelligent, no matter how good your upbringing is, no matter how providentially things were lined up for your good, nobody in this room worked their way in to right standing with Christ. The beauty of the gospel, friends, is that all of us are sinners and are born far from God in spiritual death. The beauty of the gospel, whether you are a good church kid that has grown up in Columbus, Georgia, or whether you are a self-righteous God-hater, or whether you are a hypocritical sinner, whatever the case, all of us have been born wicked and away from God. And that God, in His providence, has made us alive if we are Christians. Just for... Just, this would be a great exercise for you. Read Paul's epistles. Read Ephesians. And, and then read Peter's epistle, First and Second Peter. And, and read Colossians. And, and just read it with an accent on, on who is doing the action in the verb. Whenever you come across a verse that talks about salvation and how Christ has rescued us, read the accent. Read the agent, read the noun behind the verb. I don't know if I'm getting that grammatically correct, but you know what I'm talking about. Every time the Bible talks about how God has saved a person, it is always that God has rescued us. He has done it. He is doing it to us. We are completely passive in our salvation. And one of the great truths, one of the great humbling truths of the gospel is that we didn't save ourselves. In fact, you can't save yourself. That the power and the scandal of the gospel is simply this, is that you were dead in your trespasses. All of us have rebelled against God, whether it is in crazy public sin or whether it is in secret self-righteousness. All of us stand guilty before God. We're born that way. And God, in His graciousness, if you are a Christian, has rescued you. He has, as Ephesians 2 says, He has made you alive. Think about this for a second. The Bible's clear about what sin has done to us. Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, many other verses say that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Think about this with me just logically for a second. How does a dead person make themselves alive? They can't. It's impossible. That's why Jesus says, you know, when he has that interaction with the rich young ruler, I believe it's in Luke chapter 18, but don't quote me on that. Jesus has this interaction with the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler says, listen, Jesus, I have followed all of your commandments up until now. What should I do? And Jesus looks at him and he says, sell all of your possessions and come and follow me. And he walked away sorrowful because he just didn't feel like he could do that. And then his disciples ask him, Jesus, that was kind of hard. How, how, can, how can a person save himself? It seems impossible. And Jesus says, yes, it's right. It is impossible for you to save yourself. But with God, it, all things are possible. 
And so it is right now in and of your power, if you are not a Christian, it is impossible for you to make yourself one by cleaning yourself up. It is impossible for a dead person who's been killed by sin, whether you are a self-righteous church kid or whether you are as far from sin because of far from God because of sin as a person could be, you are dead. All of us are born dead in our sins. And God in his providence moves upon the heart of a human soul and he makes it alive. That's how God saves a person. He comes with the gospel. And this gospel, this that's why Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. The gospel carries with it the power of life. And the gospel is the simple news of what God has done in Christ on the cross to take away human sin. Jesus dies on the cross as a sacrifice, as a wrath-bearing substitute for the sin of all those that would turn and trust in Jesus. And then he rises again in victory over that sin and the consequences of that sin, which is death, thereby vindicating his godness and the approval of God of his sacrifice on the cross. And now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And that news, that simple gospel carries with it when God hits a human heart with that news, that makes you alive. Do you realize just remembering that, what humility that brings to the human heart, God has saved you if you are a Christian. It was not because you figured it out. It was not because of any particular merit in you, but God saved you. And maybe in His kindness, He caused you by His providence to be born into a family that told you that good news. Or maybe you were a million miles away from Him and had a parent or mom or dad that never taught you about Jesus. But God in His kindness brought you to Jesus. If you are a Christian, it is because God brought you back to life and gave you the faith that you then exercised as a response to the fact that He brought you back to life. Dead people can't breathe. Dead people don't have faith. If you have faith in God, it is a gift. And that should produce utter humility in you. Utter humility. And that's our final point there, that understanding the Gospel should produce utter humility in the life of a Christian. So you can't point back on it and say, oh yeah, I figured it out. I kept myself from sin. No, friend. God did it. He did it all. And so the consequences of that utter humility in the life of a Christian reach to every nook and cranny of life. It reaches to our interaction in church. It reaches to our our interaction with our spouse and with our children. It humbles us. Because we realize that it is God and God alone that has saved us. Listen to this verse from John chapter 1 and verse 12 that I think just lays this out as clearly as it can be laid out. For any of you that, and this is, and I'm sure that there are people in this room that this is going through your heart right now. I'm sure that you're thinking this way because we're Americans and we are born into a culture of self-autonomy and self-determinism and self-righteousness, which, which really are a lie. God is the author of life. And so this is a difficult truth for Americans to receive in particular because we are falsely thinking that we are the captains of our own soul. But when we realize this biblical truth 
the greatness of God in salvation, it utterly humbles us and opens us up to Christ-likeness in every area of life. Listen to this truth that I think it's clearly established here in this particular verse in John 1, verse 12. It says, this is John speaking about Jesus, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then he goes past tense. He says, who were born. In other words, their belief and their right to become children of God is evidence of something that happened in them before who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It means if you're a Christian, it's because God made you one. If you're a Christian, it means that God moved upon your soul and he saved you. And you're saying, okay, Brad, I, I get that. What, what does this have to do with life now in 2010? It has everything to do with life in 2010. Do you realize how this devastates human boasting and it exalts the greatness of God? Do you realize how living life through this lens should transform everything, every interaction, every relationship, everything that we do? Because we realize that the gospel means that God did it all and now the rest of our life is merely a response to his goodness. And so if Christ made us alive, what do I have to give him other than just my all, my every part of my being? Because the gospel humbles us and sets us all on level ground. And so we get back to the question that Paul asks, if then you received it. Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And the question before, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? I close with this. If you're not yet a Christian, or if there is a voice kind of welling up within you, that is sort of resisting this truth, and you're saying, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. I can figure this thing out. You're telling me that God completely does it all? I was dead, and now it's up to God alone to make me alive, and you're resisting that truth? Friends, I understand that resistance. It's the same resistance that Paul spoke about in Romans chapter 9 when he was speaking to the nation of Israel and to the Romans and to every human being that seem to resist this truth of God's utter sovereignty and utter goodness. Paul writes in Romans 9, and he says, Who are you, O man, that you should look at God like the clay of a pot, saying to the potter, Why have you made me thus? One of the first steps in understanding what it means to be a Christian is the utter humility that comes with knowing that it is God and God alone who can save you. And so if you are even realizing that, in fact, even if you are resisting that right now, do you realize that that may be evidence that God in his graciousness is opening your eyes to the futility of your own strength? Do you realize that that in itself is a gift that God is giving you? And it may be painful as you are realizing this, but God has given you a gift to realize that you cannot save yourself. 
Do you really want to go down that road, friends, where you say that I've got something to do with this? Because if you do want to go down that road, you realize how scary that road is. Because when is your goodness or your intelligence or your ability to resist sin, when does it become good enough to make you worthy to stand before the creator of the universe? And if there's this sense in you that you say, how could God even allow this world to be fallen? And how could God even allow us to be in a situation where we were dead to sin and now need to be brought back to life? Friends, I know that thought. I've thought that often. And honestly, the Bible has no direct answer to that. We are the created. God is the creator. The only hint of an answer that I see in the scriptures found in that same chapter in Romans chapter 9. Where Paul says, and this is a, this is a God-exalting and human-smashing truth, but where God says that, in fact, Paul writes, what if God, desiring to make his glory known, has prepared some vessels for destruction and some for honored use? In other words, God, I believe, allowed human rebellion and sin and wickedness and spiritual death to even enter into his creation for the display of his saving glory. And so if you're resisting this truth, realize, friends, that this is for God's glory and not ours. And that right now in God's kindness, he may be opening up your heart to his greatness and his goodness that he alone can save. What do you have to do? Trust in Christ, not in yourself. Trust in Christ, not in yourself. The Bible puts it this way. It says, repent and believe. Turn from self-righteousness. Turn from rebellion against God. And trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross as the sole sacrifice for your sins. That's what the Bible says to be a Christian means. To turn and trust in him. Do that even now as I'm speaking. Do that as the band comes in just a moment to lead us in a few songs of response. Turn and trust in Jesus. Trust in Christ. If you're a Christian, how does this apply to you? Oh, you need to hear this message again and again and again. You need to hear what Christ has done for you because we all need to be humbled again and again and again so that we would not be puffed up against one another and so that the gospel would shine forth from our lives and we would live out Christ's work on the cross. That's what we need to hear this morning. And so as the band comes to lead us in a few songs of worship, my prayer is that the gospel will penetrate our hearts. And if you are not yet a believer, you will trust in Jesus. And if you are a believer, we together will be humbled in the greatness of the gospel. Lord, as we now think about these things and prepare to respond to them, Father, I pray that these words would penetrate our hearts. Lord, if there's a person in this room who is not yet a believer in Jesus, I do pray that they would not be pushed back by these words, but that they would see the hope and the scandal of your grace, just how unbelievably good you are and the fact that they are even hearing this message is 
your sign of goodness to them, that you are more than able to open up their heart so that they would trust in you and not in themselves. There's a young man in this room who's made an absolute mess of his life and pursuing his own glory and pursuing his own gratification outside of you. I pray, God, that you, like only you can, would open up his dead heart to your words of life and that you would make him alive. I pray, Lord Jesus, right now that your grace would flood his heart and that that young man would trust in you, that he would stop trusting in himself and he would trust in Christ. Lord, if there is a young woman in this room who has done the same and she's given her life away chasing all sorts of broken expressions of love, I pray, God, that she would for the first time trust in you alone and the satisfaction that can only come with Christ. Lord, for the Christians in this room like myself who are so often insecure and still fight this battle with the approval of man and we, we buy into the lies of the insufficiency of the gospel, I pray that right now, God, for every husband, every wife, every parent in this room, that we would see the beauty of the sufficiency of Christ. Lord, that we would trust in you alone and that this would smash our arrogance, smash our pride, that it would transform our relationships, that if there is, if there is unresolved issues between us and some other brother or sister in this room or outside of this room, God, that we would that we would solve those things through the humility, that we would forgive one another, that we would treat one another with compassion and humility and meekness. And Lord, I pray that you would do this for the sake of your glory and the joy of your people. And that God, we would be a church that this one sentence would echo forth in our hearts. What do we have that we did not receive? And if it's all of grace, which life is, then we would live humble, gospel-centered, Christ-exalted lives for your glory and our joy. And I pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen.